Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. My name is Danielle Vogel, and you're listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio, a show about the little things you can do to minimize your personal carbon footprint. This is a show all about empowering you to take control of the pace of environmental progress you're making just by being a little bit more mindful about the way you eat, drink, shop, and think. This isn't hard stuff, but we'll show you just how easy it can be when you know exactly which small things really do matter. If fighting climate change is something that's important to you, or possibly just something you're curious to learn more about, please consider subscribing to Everyday Enviro wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by super smart corporate sustainability guru, Gary Levitan. Gary, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So you're currently the vice president of sustainability at RTS, which is a technology-based waste and recycling firm. In fact, the very firm, I should point out, that Glenn's uses to manage our three waste streams, which are, of course, trash, recycling, and compost. But you've been working in corporate sustainability for a long time. How did you become interested in the field? Well, uh, I actually took a pretty different path to the field than, uh, than I think most sustainability people or most people in the industry today. Uh, I actually graduated college over 20 years ago having zero idea what mm. I wanted to do. Uh, I know how uncommon and unorthodox that sounds, <laughs> but uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I, um, I, I was good with numbers. I got into finance, which led me actually to work for an oil company. Uh, and this was around 2005, 2006, when oil was approaching $100 a barrel, and there was an energy crisis, and every, all the pundits thought that if it reached 148 or over $100 a barrel, rather, it got to 148 that World War III to break out, would break out. It didn't. Uh, but I realized uh, I did not want to work for an oil company, uh, but wanted to stay in New York. I wanted to get into energy. I really wanted to do something good for the environment. And I realized that uh, for me to stay in energy, I would either have to move to the other side of the country or come over to the customer side or the demand side. Mm. Um, And there was nobody doing this at that time. Like around 2006, 2007, there was really no such thing as corporate sustainability. There was definitely no such thing as energy management. Mm -hmm. It was this bill, this utility bill that every large company had and felt like there's nothing they could do about it. So they started looking for people like me as, as, as the bills were growing to manage it. And Who that understood really, both sides of the equation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also after uh, deregulation, when you could actually buy your energy from any source, uh, including renewable clean sources, uh, you need, really needed somebody who had that kind of expertise. And that just, it expanded from there. You know, I started uh, for a small multifamily real estate management company, moved on to a large international retailer, Saks Fifth Avenue, Lord & Taylor, uh, then led me to J.B. Morgan Chase, which uh, close to three terawatts of energy in North America. Uh, We, um, at J.P. Morgan, uh, we actually pledged to be RE100, which is carbon neutral. Um, uh, 
anyway, we, 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 that's kind of what led me to RTS, as you mentioned. Okay. Uh, Let's let's That's back it. it up and not not uh, get ahead of ourselves here. So you were at J.P. Morgan. You were their VP of Global Sustainability for Supplier Services. Um, I know that you just met, you just mentioned, but I know that you were integral to developing their carbon neutrality initiative. Can you tell us some more about that? Like specifics. What was the what was the neutrality initiative? How did you achieve it? Why why did it come to be? And and what did you help to execute? Sure. So. Uh the carbon neutrality initiative specifically is RE100, which is an international certification. A lot of large corporates uh, join it. What does that stand for? Uh, it, uh, it's, it's Renewable Energy 100. It's a certification -E. body right, um, in Europe that you basically you submit your baseline, which is your existing carbon footprint, uh, and then they track how you either offset it with carbon offsets, renewable energy credits, or actual renewable energy. Uh, and the goal is to be on 100% renewable energy that does not add carbon into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's not just energy-based. Uh, it's also scope one and two emissions, not scope three emissions, I believe, which also waste and recycling is a part of that. But it's a small part of that. It's really so back energy. it up. What, what, people do not understand what you're talking about. What are scope one, two, and three emissions? Uh, so scope one emissions are... Uh, global gr greenhouse gases that you actually put into the atmosphere as a result of your operation. Actions. Right. Scope two is uh, indirect operation of your business. So like uh, if you're using trucks to haul some, your waste from point A to point B, the emissions that they put in the atmosphere. Scope three is your suppliers, your partners, uh, any businesses that are, are linked to you, what they put into the atmosphere. Okay, so uh, generally speaking, it is what we think of as your direct carbon impact and yep. also your externalities. Exactly. Correct. Okay, so when you mentioned earlier that they were responsible for about three terawatts of power, are we talking about collectively or are those just scope one emissions? That's just scope one emissions. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's uh, it, it, Banks have a lot of scope three emissions because of the properties that they own, they manage, the assets they manage. But also as a large commercial bank, which is Chase, they're over 5,000 sites in North America mm -hmm. alone. Uh, they just it consume a lot of energy, produce a lot of waste, and inject a lot of GHGs into the atmosphere. So how are you going to go about achieving carbon neutrality? It sounds like a tall order. It is. Uh, well, there's an easy way to do it. Um, which a lot of companies, uh, a lot of corporations don't necessarily want to take the easy way out, but it's a way to start, which is to buy renewable energy credits, mm -hmm. uh, which basically means that you, you pay money to uh, renewable energy producers, meaning generators, wind farms, solar, hydro. For every megawatt that they generate in renewable energy, they, they create a renewable energy credit. Mm -hmm. They're worth money, so you're able to finance these uh, injections into the grid. Uh, and if you buy them, they offset a megawatt for each renewable energy credit mm -hmm. of power you use. Um, that's the easy way to do it. Uh, that's not necessarily the way that we wanted to do it. That's not the way that I want to do it. What I want to do it is I want to do it through additionality, which means you're directly responsible for offsetting carbon-based. Exactly. Right. Meaning you're putting solar on your roofs, you're financing or using electricity from a, uh, like a wind, uh, wind farm or a solar farm. Um, and with waste that you're doing actual, you're removing carbon from the landfill and you're recycling and, and things like that. 
But three terawatts is a whole lot of power, and presumably you didn't own all of the buildings in which you had retail operations. Correct. So what was the plan? So the plan was to, uh, it's multi-tiered. The first tier was to affect the buildings that we did own, um, and uh, that, which is a pretty substantial part of the portfolio. And with those buildings, you, you can pretty much do whatever you want, uh, as long as it fits within your internal hurdle rate. There's a bunch of fun, esoteric financial things that I think will bore everybody. But as long as it fits within that, you could, we were going to put solar panels on the roof, uh, battery storage, um, it, it create new uh, recycling plans. We were replacing single-use materials as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also go- going into these long-term, fairly exotic power purchase agreements where you're actually buying large chunks of power from like wind farms in Texas. Mm-hmm. So you're ensuring the dispatch of those renewable energy generation resources. Correct. You're responsible for it. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, I think, in scope, your description of what a scope two uh, emissions were transportation. So, you know, when I think of a bank, I'm thinking about like three Brinks trucks a day rolling up to the retail front. Um, how did you address your transportation emissions? Uh, we didn't get to that part yet. Um, that's definitely, that's more complicated because you have to partner uh, with suppliers. Um, and there's a few ways of doing that. I mean, you know, you, you can use a supplier who uses electric vehicles. They're more prevalent right now. But there are some people in the industry who argue that electric vehicles are not clean. Because, I, I am one such human. And you're correct. You know, I mean, unless you're being charged uh, from directly from a wind or solar farm, which, by the way, don't really exist in the country. It is not happening. Um, yeah, you're still putting GHGs into the atmosphere. You're sucking coal-based electrons off the grid to charge your allegedly clean automobile. Exactly. Right. Yep. Um, making an odd choice between two evils, I guess. So uh, that's weird. I don't often find people that agree with me on that point. And RIP T Boone, I know that was your thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen, it's it, it, it's less. You know, uh, I think it's unequivocally you're putting less carbon into the atmosphere by doing it this way. And I mean, an internal combustion engine is the least efficient. Uh, locomotion tool that humans have created. You know, it needs it needs carbon just to lubricate it, let alone to fuel it. So something needs to be done about that. So getting rid of that is definitely a good thing. Moving the right but direction. It's not clean mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, heard, Jeff. Um, okay, so thank you for that. Uh, I feel like now we're sort of empowered with some some really granular specifics. But um, knowing that now, I kind of want to get back to the, like the ultra basics. So. When I graduated from college, I knew I wanted to dedicate my career to making climate change progress. Um, At the time, I thought the best venue for change making was the United States Congress, which seems like a punchline now. Uh, But at the time, I believed that the business community was not capable of genuine progressive policy. Basically, I'd concluded that in the world of business, the bottom line is the bottom line is the bottom line. And anything that was presented as progressive was no more than greenwashing. Um, I think you probably came into the sector at a time when this was at its peak in 2005, 2006. Now, obviously, I've opened a climate change motivated business. I have a vastly different perspective now. Um, And the fact is, with seemingly insurmountable stagnation in Congress, and we only get stagnation when we're not actively moving backwards at this point, the business community has really stepped up to lead. In fact, About two weeks ago, your old boss, Jamie Dimon, signed on to a business roundtable statement declaring that corporations need to answer to the communities they serve, not just their shareholders. So what are your thoughts on that development? Um, 
I, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I actually, always being in the private sector and, and kind of being an insider to corporate sustainability policies and, and procedures, um, it, it, first of all, it, most of them, if, done, if executed correctly and strategized correctly, do help the bottom line. They do make companies more sustainable not from an environmental perspective, but as a business. And they really do add value to things like real estate. Uh, they reduce expenses. They allow a more predictable future. So it, 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 it's, kind of a, it's kind of always been a misconception. Like mm-hmm. businesses have always been interested in it. The problem is that they don't really know how to execute properly mm-hmm. yet. Uh, they're learning, uh, but still, I mean, there's ultimately there's still kind of a lack of data, there's lack of technology, uh, there's a lack of like a, a real understanding on how to roll these programs out. They want to do it. Businesses really do want to do it. Um, they just, there aren't enough people out there that can execute that. And the way that these businesses are set up, and this is kind of akin to government, is you know the, the people in power, the people who make the decisions, they're there from because they're senior they've been around they've survived they don't really know these are new concepts these are esoteric ideas that they don't they don't really know how to execute how to strategize and it it, it's kind of like it paralyzes businesses but Mm -hmm. it's loosening up right now jamie diamond is a perfect example uh he's the one who just went out and said we're going to be re100 we're going to be carbon neutral uh, most companies want to be carbon neutral in 20, 30 years. He said five years. Mm-hmm. And it really means something to him. But also, you know, he, he, I think he and other leaders like him uh, understand the actual benefits of it. And the more that this happens, the more investment, the more uh, businesses are open about it. Um, and I'm not just talking about CSR reports. I'm saying like leaders, CEOs, the C-suite the more they talk about it, the more professionals with tactical execution experience are going to get into it. Yeah. And, and if, if I can make one more point, yeah. um, the more vendors, the more support, the more partners, the more technology, the more data uh, is going to be available. And there's, there really is a major lack in those things right now. Okay, we're going to back it up and we're going to work through these things one at a time. Um, So first of all, meta question, what role do you think corporations have in sustainable protection or environmental protection? I think they have to play one of the biggest roles. They're certainly the biggest uh, contributors to it Mm -hmm. uh, or one of the biggest contributors to it. And, you know, pe- you know, people say uh, you talk about deforestation or you talk about um, uh, irrigation or you talk about how, how we raise animals for food. I mean, the, they're run by corporations. So mm-hmm. they, have, uh, they have an inordinate amount of control over how much is injected into the atmosphere and climate change. Not governments. You know, governments, if we're being literal here... Right. The governments of the world don't pollute. It's they, they set up the rules and the correct. corporations make the decisions. Exactly. So I think that there is no bigger role to play in actually executing a reduction. You broke it, you bought it, boys. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Now, taking another like small step forward, we often hear the term triple bottom line. What does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure in what, in, in what sense... Um, well, a few. okay. So generally, people are talking about the um, 
like the need to benefit a, a community, not just the corporate bottom line. So they're talking about answering to the people, answering to the communities, the vendors, um, not CSR. just the boardroom or the, or the stakeholders. Yeah. Corporate social responsibility or, or you're talking about the three tenets of su- sustainability. So your business, your community and the planet. Yeah, exactly right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, putting it in that sense, yeah, it's uh, if you if all three of those things uh, are your quote unquote customer, uh, then you have a sustainable business model. Mm-hmm. If you really focus on all three, if you um, completely forget about one of those, uh, you can't have any kind of long term success. It's a good point. Let that one sink in for a second. So. Getting direct for a second, to most businesses, sustainability efforts, to say nothing of sustainability offices, seem like a luxury spend. Can you dispute that misconception? And meaning like the sustainability function within a business? Or, I mean, when think about when you were breaking into the business in 2005, 2006. Like, it seemed like it was an expense. It was a solution in search of a problem to a lot of businesses. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to uh, be too controversial here because I have some pretty strong opinions on it. Um, you know, I think part of the problem is that uh, that's the sustainability is a passion industry, right? A lot of people get into it for the right reasons mm-hmm. and they're very passionate about it. Uh, and that's all they care about. But it's a business. And... Passion and business probably shouldn't mix too much. Right? <laughs> Where were you seven years ago? Yeah. Use that advice. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was I was being a finance sustainability person, which still doesn't exist. So it, it, it's tur- it has turned into that. Uh, not for every company, but if you look at a sustainability function for most companies, it's a marketing function. Uh, they produce corporate social responsibility totally. reports. Uh, they, you know, report to the street, report to their stakeholders. It's totally a marketing function. It's greenwashing. It is. And what do you get? If it's a marketing function, you get marketing professionals. And I'm not belittling that profession mm-hmm. at all, but marketing, it, you know, there's no, there's no tangible uh, way to, like, really judge uh, or bring value. You know, like, in, in a recession or declining revenues, Marketing teams are the first to go, not because they're not good, but because they're dispensable. Mm-hmm. Sustainability needs, in, in the most successful sustainability departments within companies... There's deep integration with the leadership. Deep integration, and not only leadership, but it's usually, it reports up through a different pyramid. It's mm-hmm. either, it's a functional pyramid. It's either finance, like kind of how I made it, made, made my way through, uh, or, or real estate operations. It's a tangible... Uh, bottom line affecting line of business. And that's really where it needs to be housed. It, it, we have to move away from this greenwashing, marketing, CSR reporting cadence that every company does. We'll never get anywhere. We'll never get anywhere. They don't do anything. There's also, there's no regulation on what you could report. Uh, all the metrics are, I'm not going to say made up, but the, there's no standards. There's so it becomes really a function of effective storytelling as, a, as opposed to effective change making. 100%. All right. So I, I often find myself explaining that for my small business, the sustainable choice is actually usually the more economically efficient choice. Yes. So to give you like a really easy example from today, right? So... We pull something off the shelf because it, uh, it's a perishable item that went out of date, right? 
it got stocked anyway. Um, and it was rotated poorly, meaning like that thing should have been noticed a long time ago. It should have been at the front of the shelf. So it had the best chance of getting sold, but it wasn't. And now I pulled it from the back of the shelf and it goes into compost. And this, uh, upsets me for six reasons. <laughs> exactly. Six. So I have, I have paid the vendor for the product. I have paid my receiver to bring the product into the building. I paid my stalker to put it on my shelf. And then, um, I have paid my uh, utility bill because I've had to keep it cold while it was there. Now I've paid another person to remove it from the shelf and then I pay you to haul it away. So there are six offenses to poor rotation and we're talking about like a bottle of kombucha or something seemingly insignificant, but to the small business owner, never having a chance to sell that product is significant over time. There are cumulative impacts. Um, so if we had just been more committed to our mission and our values, and we had cared for those perishables with, you know, the care that they require in the first place, uh, we would have been both advancing our bottom line because we would have sold the product and we would be advancing our mission because we would not be perpetrating food waste, creating a crime against the environment. Um, but we didn't do those things. We fell short. And so there was an economic impact and there was a mission impact. So can you share a story or two maybe about a sustainability project you've advocated that maybe seemed expensive up front, but which ended up either saving your company money over time or even possibly making your company money? Like, let's make this case more broadly to businesses outside of my tiny grocery store. Sure. Uh, and if I could just comment real quick before I give an answer, that, that was a, the perfect example uh, for the financial benefits of sustainability. And if I could add one thing, uh, I mean, you're, we've known each other fairly briefly, but you're, you're very passionate about it. Uh, your company, uh, the mission is clear. You're very serious about it. And if there was maybe a more refined tactical approach. Than just like to, popping my exactly. top when I find a yogurt expired. And that really, exactly. I'm sure you do more than that. But yeah, I mean, Yes. It, it, the, and that's what's lacking yes. overall. Teach like, me. What do I do? How do we fix this problem? It's plagued us from the from day one. This could be like a twelve part podcast. Tune uh, in next yeah, week <laughs> yeah, for part one. Um, so, an example. Um, let's talk about LED lights. Cool. Great example. Um, LED lights have been around for decades, which most people don't realize because the lighting manufacturers didn't want to sell them because they sell fewer of them way fewer they make more money off of replacing light bulbs than they do off of the initial installation and they knew that once that led lights would come out uh it the business would be disrupted and Mm -hmm. it would turn into a project business and not a replenishment business which none of none of them wanted um and when leds first came out they were way too expensive Uh, but electricity was way more expensive than it is now so they're really, you know... They're counting on you to not do the math. Correct. Uh, I, uh, I'm i not going to pat myself on the back, but I guess I kind of am patting <laughs> myself on the back. I um, was responsible for the first large-scale fluorescent light bulb replacement uh, in North America. It was close to a million bulbs. Whoa. Um, this was like six, seven years ago. Now, I wasn't the first one to do this, but I was the first one to do it at this kind of scale. And it... Not because I knew anything about light bulbs, because I knew the energy markets and I knew uh, how to talk about futures and supply. And I, I understood that today uh, this is going to cost, it was $20, $21 million. 
the energy reduction wasn't going to, the, the actual reduction of energy usage was going to be profound, but the cost savings wasn't going to be great year one and two. But years three through 10 was going to be in, incredibly profound. And did it manifest? Yeah, absolutely. So you're needing to make an ROI argument to a business that's not used to investing in sustainability, and you're needing to convince them that the savings over time is going to offset the... Yes, and let me, um, let me just be a little bit of a finance nerd for a second. Uh, we need to move away from ROI. Uh, and that's another part of, that's another problem you just kind of hit on, um, a rabbit hole that I'm gonna try not to go down. Uh, without understanding finance speak or, or how to sell these concepts to a CFO, you're always focused on return on investment, mm -hmm. where really these are long-term assets. Okay. So you're talking about a different performer. You're talking about internal rate of return, net present value. Every company who's not bankrupt is investing capital. They have capital. It's just they decide what to invest in. Sure. And a lot of these sustainability initiatives, if you know what they're going to look like, what the asset's going to look like, it look, it's so much more interesting than just putting it in a bank or putting it in wherever they invested or building a new site or, or almost anything. You just have to know how to speak that language. Mm -hmm. A lot of energy and sustainability, because they're marketing people, uh, executives and, and leaders and managers, it, it, they have ROI drilled into their heads. Because, Definitely. And that's what they try to sell these things on, and it just doesn't work. But that's so not the, the bottom line is when it. you change your light bulb, you're not necessarily going to get a return on that investment, but you're going to see a significant decline in your outlays going forward because you're not going to have to replace the bulbs, and you're going to be draining less electricity. Less electricity. Uh, you could also go long on electricity, so you could predict how much you're going to spend. Uh, and also, there's less heat. Uh, it, it's, there's so many other benefits to it, but yeah, that's a perfect example. Over 10 years, there's very few investments that that company that I did this for are going to make that are going to have a higher return. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, cool. So we're talking with Gary Levitan about how we can make the business case for corporate sustainability. We're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to get some tips on low cost sustainability initiatives. You can adapt at your own workplace back in a sec.
Welcome back. This is Everyday Enviro, a show about the small things you can do to reduce your personal carbon footprint. I'm Danielle Vogel, founder of Glens Garden Market, and I'm joined today by Gary Levitan, who is a certified energy manager and formerly served as the VP of Global Sustainability for Supplier Services at J.P. Morgan Chase. We've been talking corporate sustainability theory, and now we're going to give you some tips about low-cost sustainability efforts you might consider for your own companies. So, Gary, over the course of your 13-year career managing corporate sustainability programs, surely you've run up against resistance from time to time, especially when the price tag is high. Can you give us a few examples of particularly cost-effective sustainability initiatives that you've instigated? So I hate to bring it up again, but uh, now LED lights are that for sure. Uh, Those kind of really easy plug and play, super cheap uh, energy savings initiatives like that uh, are, I I can't, can't lose. uh, So when you say like that, like be more specific to people that aren't totally in this world, like low flow toilets, like, are we talking about double pane glass? What are, what are the easiest things to do? Um, okay. So it really depends on the facilities, uh, that you're running. Um, you know, double pane glass is a good one. It's not necessarily low cost. There are different, uh, films that you could use on your windows that, uh, can have a pretty profound impact. You could, uh, even if you're looking at ROI, those things, because they're so cheap to install, you could have a very quick ROI. Um, there are studies, uh, depending on the regions that you're in, that you could have. You could do energy audits most, most of the time for free uh, because there are, there are various incentives that you could use that will teach you how to you know, properly run. Your, I mean, we're talking about low cost, low touch, like how to properly run your HVAC system, how to improve your building envelope. You know, With very little investment, just with some elbow grease, you could reduce your energy footprint. Okay, uh, specifics. First of all, what's a building envelope? Uh, so building envelope is just is basically, you know how, how do I describe this? Um, when you open the door on a hot summer day in an air-conditioned building, there's like a suction. Mm-hmm. That's the building envelope. It's mm. like the pocket of moving air inside of your building. Uh, there shouldn't be a suction. Like a perfectly, a perfectly balanced building that's energy efficient, it opens very easily no matter what's happening inside. And when you optimize that, you don't really need to invest money into it. You just need to know how to do it. You could, you could save a ton of money, especially you know here in D.C. where it's super hot in the summer. You could save so much money doing that. And is this something as simple as settings on your HVAC unit? Uh, it could be. It depends on your HVAC unit. It could be adding a few low-cost sensors. Uh, it could be buying a new thermostat. Um, unfortunately, it could also be having to get a new HVAC unit, which oh, cool. That's a cool a- enters uh, quarter the, of a mill for you. Yeah, enters the <laughs> world of non-low cost, uh, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be most times. Um, you, could, you know, we could also talk about uh, a proper recycling program, like really separating things properly, uh, which you know doesn't really require any investment. It, it just requires routines to be created. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, we, I, I hope one day we start talking about a circular economy type things. Again, uh, this could actually make you money, uh, which is one of the reasons I came over to the waste recycling industry um, is, you know, like we're working on a program right now where uh, a company is using their own food waste to cre- that gets fermented into a cleaning product that they now use. And it actually makes it's such a profound savings uh, that it, if successful, we're still piloting it. 
Uh, I like the smile that I just I mean, saw. I, I need all the details. What are you talking about? I, I can't Fermented go, foods. I can't go into. And they clean your floors. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'll but, give you as many details as I can yeah, right now. I mean, are, is this an off-site transformation? Yeah. Is yeah. there an additive? Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not that familiar with the chemical, uh, properties of it, but, uh, basically it's digested. Uh, it creates two products. It creates a, uh, an alcohol type substance and also fertilizer. Uh, and the alcohol type su- substance gets turned literally into a household cleaner like Windex. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I mean, think about how low cost that is. I yeah. mean, that, it costs it's you your trash. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Can you let me know when that becomes more commercially available? You know, I will. <laughs> I'd be super interested. That's awesome. Um, okay. So films as, as opposed to uh, double pane glass, HVAC settings, et cetera, that might reduce the amount of energy leaching when we're opening and closing doors. Uh, LED lights. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's get to five. That's three so far. Okay. Uh, we need to get rid of single use not just plastics, but single-use everything, for that matter, um, which it, it, it's difficult whether I think that that's a low-cost thing or not. Uh, I, I think you could probably, if you do it strategically, it could probably be a break-even thing mm-hmm. or, or a pretty low-cost thing. Um, there's the water usage uh, aspect of it, if you're cleaning things um, that, you're, you know, that you're reusing. Uh, but that's, I've seen implemented successfully, uh, many times for my customers now. And also at my last jobs. Yeah. I mean, over sort of the course of world events, the water used for cleaning a reusable container is significantly less than creating a new material and transporting it. For sure. And, you know, with water, which again, we could do, you know, another podcast on that. Um, that's going to be, it's going to be a crisis soon. And that's just, there's plenty of it. We're just mismanaging it mm-hmm. so horrifically mm-hmm. um so i owe you one more don't i yeah um honestly I, I, I hate to be uh i hate to romanticize it but uh routines i mean literally retraining you the people who go in and out of your buildings whether it's customers and guiding them through your sites differently or your staff uh, turning lights off, uh, not, you know, running water. I mean, you don't really need to invest money into these things. You can, you know, there are sensors and, and trackers and monitor, but I mean, really like human beings are creatures of habit habit and routine. And if you change the routines, uh, for the best, and if you engineer those changes, you 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 become sustainable and you quite frankly you you'll save money pretty quickly yeah i mean frankly like you don't need to invest in things like i mean you certainly could invest in sensors but if you're like me and you literally don't have two shekels to rub together uh run a game about it right so i wanted to change your behavior among my team and so i ran a game about it with 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 the most um compelling prize known to man or beast which is a free t-shirt uh, and the idea was that if they, for over the course of a month, changed their behavior on this certain thing, then at the end of the month, if we had accomplished the goal, everybody got a T-shirt. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it ends up costing me like $8 a person or something like that, which is, it's got to be less than installing sensors, for instance. But the idea is like, if you want to choose one of these things that Gary's identified, um, you know, it's something as simple as freaking turning off the lights when you leave for the day, run a game about it. Really low inputs and changing the behavior over the course of a month could have significant impacts for savings for you to say nothing of 
you know, environmental impact minimized? Oh, without question. I mean, it, I think it would shock you or maybe it wouldn't. Um, how many, and when I say, I'm about to say people, but just, just how many businesses don't turn lights off? Mm -hmm. You know, like I've installed sensors in many companies and people don't turn lights off. Totally. I mean, there's a, uh, like the kind of the worst thing that can happen in a grocery store is a power outage for obvious Oof, reasons. Yeah. It's a room surrounded by refrigerators. And, uh, you know, we're in DuPont Circle. We have extreme weather patterns more now than ever before. Um, and, I, you know, if we lose power at my home, which conveniently is across the street from the store, my, I lurch out of bed and I look down the alley to figure out whether the lights in the office building adjacent to us are still on. Because that's how I can tell whether we've lost power or not. I can be sure that the office has left their lights on. Yeah, the problem with that is that they're probably on a generator that's... Uh, no, it's the same building. No, no, no. What, what I mean is the office lights probably have some kind of diesel generator that turns on when the power goes out. So. No, our building doesn't have oh, any generators. Right. So I know that like their bad habits are like my... I get, right, What's right. the opposite of a canary in the coal mine? <laughs> yeah. You're totally right, though. I mean, that's that's a great example. Like the uh, same thing in New York; those lights are always on, always on, always on. And it doesn't matter that they're LED, whether they're LEDs or not. That that's such a pointless use of energy that is just is just literally money being thrown out the window. Totally, totally. Um, all right. So if if you're listening out there and you're looking for a really inexpensive way to save yourself money while reducing your company's carbon footprint, run a game about turning the lights off. And award T-shirts. And award T-shirts. Um, or just uh, bring them to Glenn's for a $4 beer, the winners. That, that t- tends to work well, too. Um, all right. Finally, Gary, this is a show about minimizing our personal carbon footprint. What are some things you do in your own personal life to reduce your environmental impact? Well, I always turn lights off. I can tell you that. <laughs> Uh, sometimes and he's too got the much. T-shirt to prove it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's hard uh, because it's hard not to feel in your personal life like your uh, your impact is just so tiny. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, I just I'm I'm very aware of it. Uh, I try to be a little bit of a bull in a china shop, but not too much when I'm around other people to kind of try to expand how much I can do by mm-hmm. like being like, look, I, I just did this. I turned uh, the water off. I turned the lights off. Proxy yes. environmental stewards. Exactly. Um, it's, you know, uh, w- w- what's that? Uh, it passed. It's not pass it along. It's, you know, when you pay do it forward, thing, pay it forward. Yes. Um, like yesterday I was at the mall, uh, with my kids and we were at, uh, B- uh Beth and body works and there's a, a sink in the middle of this mall store with just running water. And I called my kids over and I'm like, what do we do with the running water? We <laughs> yeah. turn it off. Why was it running? Nobody, I, I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to shut it off. So I try to do things like that. Uh, you know, I try, I, I recycle. We, we have composting in my building um, where I live. Uh, is it done properly? Um, Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's not another. Not often. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now I'm in that world now. Yeah. So, you know, I, unfortunately, the infrastructure in this country needs a lot of work. It, which is another reason why I tried to join, you know, like a, a technology-based recycler. Because uh, I, I want to fix these things. And they're so infinitely fixable. Mm-hmm. Um, I buy my own energy. Uh, I don't have a house now. But when I did, uh, I bought it from clean sources. Um, 
Uh, you know, I, I, I just really try to make it known that these things are people don't even notice. I think people ultimately want to do the right thing. And a lot of times they think they're doing the right thing, but they're not. Mm-hmm. And you just bring it to their attention and uh, hopefully it, it spreads more and more. So awesome. I that's to- that's wisdom right there. Um, so do what you can and force other people to do what you can't <laughs> shame them into being more sustainable. And I'm not above it. <laughs> it's what the show's it's what's going to have to happen. It's going to have to, uh, her chef. That's absolutely true. All right. So uh, lest it go without saying climate change is real. It's happening right now. And human activity is making it worse. Guys, every little bit counts. Keep finding ways to minimize your personal carbon footprint. It really matters. And it's urgently necessary. Gary, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Can't wait to do it again. And thank you for listening to Everyday Enviro on Full Service Radio. If you like the show, please consider subscribing. Uh, And in any event, I'll catch you again next week on Everyday Enviro. Talk then. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.